way back when, when I was involved in youth ministry, there were ways that I tried to keep myself abreast on changing trends within the the youth culture. Uh, We were moving out of the analog age more to a digital age, and so there were things going on with young people and all that I just needed to be aware of. And one of the features that, one of the things that I did is I got this newsletter on a monthly basis. I think it came from the people at Youth Specialties. And, and part of that newsletter was to update youth workers on the kind of an urban dictionary of youth phrases that were being used throughout the country. And uh, it, you know, it was through this publication that I learned that bad was good. Uh, it was through this publication that I learned that fat, spelled P-H-A-T, had nothing to do with one's waist size. In fact, it actually meant that someone was awesome. And what was really interesting was the one term that I had used in my youth was still being used and still in vogue, cool. Everybody still said cool. Uh, So it was really interesting. And as years go by, I have kind of kept my, uh, my eyes on trendy phrases. There are two phrases or catchwords that are going to really fit the passage that we used this morning. The first one is optics. Uh, Optics has nothing to do with your glasses or your contact, contact lenses. Optics has more to do with how things are perceived by others. We'll talk about what are the optics, how do people see this. The other one is the word authentic or authenticity which means to really be genuine, to be real, to to, uh, not only be real when people see you, but to be real when people don't see you. When the optics of our lives are the same in public as they are in private, then one could say they're being authentic. Now, before those words or ideas were ever in vogue, the concepts were out there. See, in the passage today, we're going to see Jesus speaking very directly to the Pharisees and to the experts in the law who probably were part of the Pharisaical groups. And what Jesus is going to point out to them in the passage that we're going to look at today is their lack of authenticity. In another one of those trendy phrases, we're going to find Jesus not being user-friendly. He's going to show them how their practice of faith was based more on the optics, more on how people saw them, than it was on an authentic relationship with God. The thing I want you to keep in mind, and I'm going to repeat this several times throughout today's sermon, I want you to remember this. I need to be certain that the exercise of my faith is genuine from the core of my being outward. Now, I've got to give you just a real short history lesson so you can understand what's going on here. Uh, We have to understand why it seems Jesus was always at odds with the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? What made them this group that Jesus seemed to always be at odds with them? You're not going to find the Pharisees in the Old Testament. They're not there. 
In fact, the closest you will find is a brief description of one priest, and this is kind of who the Pharisees wanted to be like. His name is Ezra. And in the book of Ezra, chapter 7 and verse 10, we read this. Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. That's who the Pharisees started out wanting to be. To understand the Pharisees, you need to understand that they came about in a period of time called the intertestamental period. It was that time between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, more or less. It was a time in which Israel had been ruled by the Persians, who had taken over by the, from the Babylonians, and began to send Israel back. Cyrus started that, sending Israel back to the Promised Land, thinking that it was his decision, not realizing that God had already said, after 70 years, you're going to go back to the land. And so they're getting back to the land, and, and over a few years, centuries actually, another superpower comes up. It's the Greek nation. And under the leadership of General Alexander the Great of the Emperor, the Greeks took over the known world. In fact, it is believed that Alexander's empire was the largest in history, from spanning from Greece all the way to what we know as India. And then he was coming back through. He was in Egypt and getting ready to go west. And then something happened that he hadn't expected he died at the age of 32 years old. One of the things that Alexander wanted to do was spread Greek philosophy and thought throughout the world, and that was called Hellenism. And Alexander dies, and, and, and all of a sudden, he, hadn't, he didn't have a backup plan. He didn't have a succession plan. He didn't have other leaders ready to step in because he wasn't planning on dying at 32 years old. And so what happens is the, the Greek empire got divided into four sections. One of those sections was under the rule of General Seleucus, and the people that followed him were called the Seleucids. And over the years, they had the area that we now know as Palestine or Israel and, and a little bit further to the east of that. The Seleucid dynasty was very much about infusing Greek thought and philosophy, this philosophy known as Hellenism, into the area that they ruled. Somewhere between 150 to 200 years before Jesus was born, there was a push by a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and he wanted to push to eradicate everything, all religious thought except for Greek thought, especially in the area that he controlled, which was Palestine. Now, in Israel, that was met with a lot of resistance. And uh, there was a, a, an individual named Joseph Maccabees, and he and his sons staged a revolt, and, and they, they wanted to try to change all of that. And, and eventually, they were successful. But even prior to that, there were two groups in Israel that kind of grew up. One of them was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were this group of people that were very much wanting to keep Israel following God's law. They, you would have called them orthodox. And so here when the Greeks are saying, no, we want to get rid of that, they're saying, no, we're going to follow God's law. 
But there was another group. They were mainly in the city of Jerusalem, and they took the approach, hey, you know, we ought to just try to get along with the Greeks. We ought to try to get along with them as much as possible. We shouldn't rock the boat. We, this is more of a political thing, and we need to kind of fit together. And they were known as, and you see them in the Bible, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees stayed in Jerusalem, and, and so Antiochus Epiphanes felt, since I'm the leader of all of this, I get to choose the high priest. I want a high priest that kind of fits with me, and so he chose his high priest to kind of lead in Jerusalem from the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the ones that started out and about these synagogues that were places of learning and education, and they really became the heart of the people. Now, here's why I tell you all of this. Not so you can think that I know something about history. I tell you all of this because I want you to understand before we look at our passage in Luke, the original intentions of the Pharisees were very good. They wanted people to adhere to God's law as given by Moses. But something happened along the way. As they wanted to help people learn to live God's law on a daily basis in practical ways, they begin to interpret God's laws and to help people stay intact in touch, they, they would add some rules and some regulations and some things that needed to be enforced because we want to keep you here. And eventually their rules and their regulations became more important than the very laws that God had written in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in fact, that was the atmosphere into which Jesus was born. So when Jesus comes along and he follows the law of God as it was written, Jesus being the active agent in creation, being God the Son, being very God of very God, he kind of knew because he helped write them. You know, he knew this stuff. And so when Jesus comes along and he lives out the truth of God's law in its written form, but he doesn't go by all the rules and regulations of the Pharisees, they called him a lawbreaker. And he was in constant conflict with this group. Optics for the Pharisees eventually became more important than authenticity. And remember, I need to be certain that the exercise of my faith is genuine from the core of my being outward. Now, with all of that foundation, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. And we're going to pick it up this morning in verse 37. Luke chapter 11, verse 37. And uh, we're going to see Jesus being very direct in his comments. Listen as I read our passage for today. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. 
Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, Woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves had not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Well, this is a very interesting passage, and yet it's a passage that I think has some important principles for all of us, even though Jesus stated them in a, in a different way. Jesus has been teaching. The, the scene sets, is set for us. He's been teaching, and, and once again, he's been invited to dinner to a Pharisee's house, and this has happened several times throughout the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and, and here's the thing, it becomes very obvious very quickly that Jesus wasn't invited to dinner to be honored. He was invited to this dinner probably to be caught so that he, they could kind of have something against him. We need to understand that Jesus wasn't the type of person to just be the polite dinner guest, you know, to be quiet and kind of, you know, especially when matters of the kingdom of God were involved. He is not going to be the quiet dinner guest. So they get started, and the Bible says the, the Pharisee was surprised. More accurately, you could say he was astonished. He was astonished that Jesus didn't wash before the meal. Now, don't think that Jesus is practicing bad hygiene here. You know, we just had our grandkids around for the last couple of days, or the four of our grandkids. And, you know, before every meal, it's go wash your hands. Everybody go wash your hands. Yes, that's basic hygiene. This is not what's going on here. What was going on here was not the washing of grime off of one's hands. This was a ceremonial washing. And in fact, it was a, a washing that was a self-proclamation that uh, they would wash. And they would wash the, the cups. In fact, there were two 
philosophies, pharisaical philosophies. One said you wash the cup on the outside and the inside, and the other you just wash the cup on the outside and it was ceremonially clean. And it wasn't that they were eating from dirty dishes. They were doing this as a show. These dinners were not like private things in your dining room at your house. People would be around. I mean, if a Pharisee is having an honored guest like Jesus, you get to come and watch us eat. That's entertainment for the night. You get to listen to our conversation. And so they would wash their hands, and, and over the years, this documentation would come about to talk about how much water you used and how much water you used that you could share and, and all. And it was a ceremonial washing, in essence, saying, I have not defiled myself with the outside world. I am pure, and I am washing to show you that I have not defiled myself. It was a self-proclamation. And so it wasn't just the, the hands, it might have been the utensils, there were certain ways that you had to pour the water over your hands to let it run down in certain ways. It was all for show. And Jesus makes a point as this person is astonished. And the point is, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside, you're full of greed and weak, wickedness. You look really good on the outside, but you are really full of bad stuff on the inside. In other words, what Jesus wants to teach is simply this. Sincerity is a whole person reality. If you are sincere on the outside, but you are not sincere on the inside, then you are not sincere. If you are showing all the optics of faith and religiosity on the outside, but there is no true faith on the inside, you aren't sincere. And, and Jesus says, you know, you're all up in arms about the externals. You're all up in arms about this stuff, that, but you're constantly ignoring the internals. For instance, the very food in their clean dishes wasn't made available to the poor. That's greed. The, their insides were full of greed. That word is, can literally be translated robbery. What, what Jesus is saying is your lives reflect extreme materialism. You want what you want for yourself. He says you're, you're coupled this with maliciousness. That's the word wickedness, literally maliciousness. Sincere on the outside, corrupt on the inside. One person said they had lost the heart of their religion. Never forget, God is as concerned with the externals as he is the internals. That's what Jesus is saying here. So his point is, if you were generous to the poor, it would show a heart of grace, it would show a heart of kindness, it would show a heart of love. And they were not generous to the poor. And so Jesus said, you be generous to the poor, it would reflect what you really want to reflect. Now, from this point on, Jesus issues a series of statements that begin with the word woe. The term woe is sometimes a term used for a curse or a warning, but I would agree with those who see it more in this context as a lament. One commentator put it this way, Jesus is saying to them, how sad it is for you. 
Jesus is, I, I didn't, and, and you might have noticed the tone of how I read it. I don't think Jesus is necessarily angry and yelling at them. I think he's expressing a lament. I'm so sorry for you. I'm so sorry for you Pharisees because you're focusing on the wrong things. And so this series of woes is, is showing them the, the lament for their behavior that's so sad because it's really doing nothing to promote true godliness. So he begins, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. The Pharisees tithe. I mean, they followed the law. They tithe. They gave 10%. In fact, they tithe so much that they believed in the whole idea of first fruits, which is a very clear principle in the Bible. And so they, they tithe their mint and their dill. You ever seen mint and dill and rue? These are little herbs. I mean, the, the, the picture here is they go to their herb garden and they clip, 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 clip. That's 10%. I give that to God. I get to keep the rest. Or sometimes if they couldn't get to the temple to give it, they could sell it for silver and, and donate the silver. And, and Jesus said, that's great. You, you do all of this and that's really good. But in, in Leviticus, or in Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verses 12 through 15, they were told that one-tenth of all the produce of their field, that meant their mint and their rue and everything else, was to go to the Levite and to the foreigner and to the orphan and to the widow. So what they were doing is bringing this, maybe selling it and taking their silver and giving it to the temple, or maybe just kind of hanging on to it and say, well, I'm going to set this aside and I'll give it to God when it's convenient. But they weren't using it to take care of the widow and the orphan and the, and the foreigner and the Levite. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're not worried about others. You're missing the, the love and the justice of God, which takes care of the widow and the orphan and the stranger. You're missing that, but you sure look good on the outside. And I think the point Jesus is making is you and I can't pick and choose our obedience. You can't pick and choose your obedience. I can't be obedient to God in this area and decide, yeah, I, I, can, I can slough off over here. You can't do that. And Jesus says you should do both. Yes, obey God in giving, definitely. But also obey God in practicing justice and showing sacrificial love and kindness and grace to those who have less. We can't pick and choose our obedience. Now, Jesus doesn't even wait for them. He goes on and he says, Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Here's the third thing he says to them. Managing your image does not glorify God. As I've said over the, you know, we just talked about it, the Pharisee position became very prestigious, and it ended up being a political position too. And so they, had, they would parade themselves in the marketplace. They would parade themselves because they were the final decision of what was righteous and good in their minds. And there's an awkward attraction, isn't there, to someone who kind of comes across as having all the answers? 
You know, they, they can develop an, an entourage. You want to be with that person that seems to have all the answers, that seems to be that bigger-than-life person. And Jesus is saying, I feel so sad for you. You don't just want the most important seats in the synagogue. You love them. And by the way, interesting side note, the word love that's here is that word that some people say is the highest form of love. You agape them. In other words, you will do whatever you need to do to get that seat. You long for that. You are going to, if there's a sacrifice made to get that seat so people can see that you're somebody, then you're going to go for that. You long, they long for that. They would go to great lengths. They will go to great lengths to be seen and greeted in the marketplace. I saw the other day this thing somebody put up on Facebook, something like, who's the most, who's the most famous person you've ever seen or been close to? And, and somebody said, I once touched Henry Winkler's jacket. You know, it's like... Uh, so, you know, I mean, you know, my, my son and I were at a, a football game at Notre Dame several years ago, and uh, we're standing there. We did the whole experience. We went into the rotunda where they played the fight song and everything, and we were standing there, and my son nudges me and goes, Dad, 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 look, that's David Robinson who played for the San Antonio Spurs. His son happened to be on the team. You know, and we're both kind of like, yeah, cool. You know, uh, I didn't like go over and go, hi, Mr. Robinson. Uh, but, you know, it was just pretty cool to, you know, that's a, kind of a famous person. Well, the Pharisees wanted that attention. I want to walk through the marketplace. Hey, hey, good to see you. Hey, you're looking good. Yeah, hey, hey, good. And they, they says, you love that. But all they were doing was managing their image, and managing your image does not glorify God. Haven't we been chagrined and shocked and blown away over the past few years by these internationally known Christian leaders who have managed their image, and all of a sudden now we're discovering that there was this other lifestyle that was absolutely sinful and horrendous, and it just grips us and hurts us and makes us sad. When my image is all that matters, I end up becoming my own God, and that's idolatry. Now, this last woe for the Pharisees is it's a little tricky on the surface. Jesus says, woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. The Pharisees would not even touch a grave, lest in some way they would be defiled. And what Jesus is saying is, you have become so elite, you have become so self-absorbed, that the way you parade yourself and others is like an unmarked grave in this way. Without even knowing it, those who follow you become just as defiled. So if you're defiled by touching a grave, then you're also defiled by walking over an unmarked grave, and that's what you've become. You have become people that defile others by your arrogance, by your adherence to rules that you made up. In other words, I think Jesus is saying truth matters. And when you are not being truthful, you draw other people away. He says you're just like a, this... 
this grave that nobody sees. They walk over and go, oh man, I was defiled. I didn't even know I was defiled. I didn't even know that was a grave. I didn't even know I was following this. I thought they were good guys. I thought they were the right guys to follow. But they're not even truthful. Truth matters. Now at this point, somebody wants to kind of settle the, they want to kind of slow it down a bit, you know? And so it's an expert in the law. The experts in the law, probably, like I said, were probably part of the Pharisaical group. But their job was to literally study and know the law of Moses, to know it and to know it well. But then it became a job to not only know the law of Moses, you better know all the other things that go along with it and all the other writings that are there with it and all the rules. And so he's kind of trying to, as we would say today, distance himself a little bit from the Pharisees. And he says, um, teacher, you know, when you say those things, you're insulting us as well. <laughs> and it's like Jesus says, oh, yeah, I got your insult right here. <laughs> okay, you, want, you, you, you don't think this is for you? I'll make it for you. You experts in the law, woe to you because you load the people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. I believe the point Jesus is making is this. Legalism is always inconsistent. I worked real hard to not say legalism is consistently inconsistent, but that's what I wanted to say, but we'll keep it simple. These were experts in what we call legalism. Legalism is strict adherence to a moral code. Some would say that legalism restricts personal choice. Legalism is oppressive, it's unfair, and it's inconsistent. Here's what I mean. These experts in the law knew the law so well, they also knew the loopholes. They knew the ways that they could get you to follow the law and they could get around it, but then they could make you think that you had really messed up and that they were still following the law. Jesus said, that's what you're doing. You're burdening people down with these rules and you are punishing severely those who don't stay in line, but then you won't even help them when they need help. Your own example is fraught with inconsistencies. See, when there are those who struggle with the rules and those who slip up in the rules or those who sometimes might have a question about the logic of the rules, the legalist has no room for grace, no room for listening, no room for change, only room for obedience the way I say to obey, period. Legalism is always inconsistent. And by the way, we each one should be very conscious of our own non-negotiables and make sure that if I say this is a non-negotiable in my life, I can back it up with clear, sound, biblical teaching and make sure that when I run into someone who doesn't fit with my non-negotiable, that I show them the same grace that God has shown me. Now, this next section is the longest section of, this, of these different woes. Picks it up in verse 47. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. 
So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they kill, they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. And the blood of, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. What is Jesus saying here? I'll tell you the point, then I'll explain it. Symbolism is not substance. The building of a tomb, even as it is today in the ancient world, was sometimes a way of honoring or revering someone. I grew up in Salina, Kansas. 26 miles east of Salina, Kansas is Abilene, Kansas. Abilene, Kansas was the boyhood home of President Dwight D. Eisenhower. There is a museum there. There is the, you can actually go and visit the grave of Dwight D. Eisenhower and Mamie Eisenhower. It, it was a way to honor them. Take it a step further. If you've never been to Arlington National Cemetery, I would encourage you to go. To stand there on those grounds and to see spread out as far as the eye can see white crosses of men and women who have given their lives in protection of this country is it's just an amazing experience to just look at that. And we have those there to honor those people. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that the prophets that these experts in the law are supposed to be honoring are prophets that the system that these experts are building up ended up using to martyr them. You see, the prophets obeyed God. And yet when that prophet in obedience to God called out something or showed someone their fault, the, the tendency is either, either you change and you obey God or you try to eliminate the voice. Abel obeyed God. He brought a lamb sacrifice. And it wasn't that Cain wasn't supposed to bring his fruits. That was okay. First fruits was good. It was his heart. And Abel's heart was a heart of obedience. And Cain's heart was a heart of, yeah, let's just get this done. And so when God told Cain, you, you know, when, when, to try it again, Cain goes out and he says, I'm going to remove the competition. If Abel's gone, I have such a low view of God. If I get rid of Abel, I don't have to worry anymore. And he killed his brother. Zechariah. His story is at the end of 2 Chronicles, chapter 24, verses 17 to 24. Joash is the king. Joash did a few good things. But there were some prophets that were not obeying God, and Zechariah calls them out. And as a result, for calling them out, they sought to eliminate his voice, and they killed him. And by the way, that's what these very same Pharisees and religious rulers are going to do to Jesus just a few chapters down the road in the Gospel of Luke. They thought they could silence him and silence his voice. You see, their symbolism of honoring the prophets was without substance. And so this rebuke is very similar to, chapter, to verse 44. The Pharisees were like this hidden grave where defiled people, uh, uh, that defiled people, and the experts and the law were like this fancy tomb that was a shallow gesture of honor, and it still defiled people. The result was, the leadership 
did not point people to God, but pulled them away from him in a system of control. Their symbolism had no substance. Jesus finishes with this one, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Imagine a teacher who chooses not to teach their students. I mean, every day the students show up to the door and the classroom is locked. That's a teacher that's not going to last very long. Jesus is saying to the experts in the law, you study God's law, you memorize it, you debate it, but you refuse to teach it clearly to people who want to learn and grow. You are withholding knowledge from them, and withholding knowledge is despicable. You're withholding knowledge from them. And what's more, by your actions, you're not only putting yourselves in a position to be barred from God, you're keeping others away as well. Now, it's very easy for me to look at this chapter and say, man, those guys were awful. I wouldn't want to be one of those guys. I wouldn't be like that. And then I have to take a look at my life. Do I ever, by my words or my actions or the way I deal with people in the community, do I ever hinder someone from knowing or even wanting to know Jesus? Do I ever get in their way? Yeah, as a pastor... It has broken my heart over the years when every now and then I hear someone go, oh, well, if that person is a Christian, I don't want to be one. Or if that's the way they're at, like at that church, well, I'm not going there. Uh, We need to be the kind of people like Paul speaks about in Titus chapter 2 and verse 10 where he says we are to make the gospel of Jesus attractive. So now we have these principles, these seven principles. Sincerity is a whole person reality. You can't pick and choose your obedience. Managing your image does not glorify God. Truth matters. Legalism is always inconsistent. Symbolism is not substance. Withholding knowledge is despicable. What do I do with all of that? How do I respond? Well, let me circle us back to that one point. The sermon in a sentence, I would call it. I need to be certain that the exercise of my faith is genuine from the core of my being outward. I would maintain this morning that we must approach God with humility. We must live out our faith with grace and humility. We need to be able to be corrected so that God can change us. And look at the response of these religious leaders when Jesus was done and he goes outside. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something they might say. Their response reveals their true heart. They sought all the more to debate and to refute and to discredit Jesus. See, instead of saying, whoa, the curtain's been pulled back on me and I better take a strong look, they believed that everything they lived and taught was being exposed and they needed to defend it and they dug in all the more. Hear me clearly again. There are some non-negotiables that we really need to have when it comes to our faith. We need to hold clearly and firmly to the deity of Jesus Christ. 
we need to realize that our, our salvation is not based on our good works, but based on his work of being born as, of a virgin, of living among us a holy and perfect life, of willingly dying on the cross for our sins, being buried and rose again the third day, as Paul says, according to the scriptures. You got to cling to that. That's the essence. That's the bedrock of our faith. I need to cling to the truth and the reliability of the scriptures as my guide and faith to practice. I need to cling to the truth that God the Father has promised that Jesus, God the Son, will return and will conquer evil and set things right someday. I need to cling to the fact that when I put my faith in Jesus, God the Holy Spirit indwells me and, and he guides me and he illuminates my thinking so I can understand the scriptures. Those are important realities. And I need to express those realities in a way that is of grace and love and kindness because I need to be certain that the exercise of my faith is genuine from the core of my being outward. When I was a kid, I grew up in a very conservative church in the middle of Kansas. My dad was the pastor. So whatever rules you had, I had more. And I get it, looking back as an adult, I understand. The rules were originally designed, or at least they were presented as that which would help those of us who wanted to follow Jesus stay focused on him. And we had rules for everything. We had rules for music. We had rules for youth group activities. We, I never went to my high school junior and senior prom. That was evil. I went to prom alternative. In fact, I emceed the prom alternative. Uh, and, you know, we had rules, no movies, no adult beverages, no this, no that, all these rules. In 1978, that church fired my dad. Why? Well, it wasn't because the church wasn't growing. It was. I mean, we were packed out every week. We had great programs and we had people coming to know the Lord. But my dad did something unthinkable. This is 1978, middle of Kansas. He shepherded a family of color through the process of joining our church. And that was the beginning of the end of his ministry there. You see, all the rules didn't matter for these leaders when it came to worshiping together in a church that hopefully would look like heaven would look with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That didn't matter to them. That was a very painful time in our family's life. And yet God saw us through it. And in fact, I will say this to the credit of that church. It was just several years ago. I got a phone call here in the office. The individual who was pastoring that church at the time had done some investigating, some digging, and he learned the whole story. And he called, and on behalf of the church, apologized to me. My dad was in heaven by then, apologized to me and to my family. And I forgave him. And I forgave the church and the people who were so misguided. But I learned, again, that rules and image-based faith is dangerous, and it's empty. And that's the point Jesus is making in this whole rebuke. 
The whole point he's making of these leaders, these leaders who started out so well, they wanted to stand on the truth of the word of God and they wanted to cling to it. They started out so well and then it became more about them than it did the truth of the word of God. And I realize I need to guard my heart first in all matters of faith and practice. I need to be certain day in and day out, that the exercise of my faith is genuine from the core of my being outward. Only then will the Word of God, illuminated by the Spirit of God, lived out consistently by the people of God, help us in that endeavor. It's not about optics. It's about being authentic. Not just to my true self, whatever that means, but being authentic in my relationship with Jesus, allowing him to correct me and shape me and mold me to bring glory only to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you're not willing to pull us up short, that you're not willing to, you're not willing to pull any punches. You're willing to pull us up short. You're willing to speak truth. I thank you for truth. May we respond to truth and say, Lord, change me so that I can be who you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen.